Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physiotherapist and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I am joined by Dr. Phil Wagner, the founder and CEO of Sparta Science. Sparta Science is a performance technology company providing movement diagnostic software and solutions to various performance organizations. In this episode with Phil, we discuss him setting up Sparta, predictive systems, machine learning, and much more. So without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Dr. Phil Wagner. Dr. Phil Wagner, welcome to the show. It's uh, great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Just to begin with, could you outline, I guess, your background and your kind of initial route into the performance and sports medicine arena? Yeah, um, I think it probably began, uh, like a lot of folks, uh, was active at a young age and competing in sports. And um, I, was a, I was a pretty bad athlete, but uh, a very determined one. So ended up getting hurt quite a bit uh, throughout my high school and college career um, in, in college football. And then eventually actually rugby overseas uh, playing in New Zealand and, and really consistently was hurt in different areas and, and shocked by the level of um, guesswork at that time that went into identifying where some of the risks were and, and if, I, if I was able to come back to playing and when. And so became really interested in, in how athletes prepared themselves or returned from injury. And so became a strength and conditioning coach, uh, you know, initially at Cal, uh, Cal University of California, Berkeley, and really just be, loved this idea of, of planning periodization for individuals and and improving their outputs and, and reducing risk at the same time um, saw greater opportunities. So eventually uh, made my way into to medical school to learn how medicine used data and plans with patients to get them back from disease quickly or, or in some cases to prevent disease. Um, you know, all with this idea that I wanted to still return to my original pain of, you know, why I got hurt. Um, and so that ultimately led me to start a company in the Silicon Valley here called Sparta Science and, and taking at least my experiences, not only as an athlete, but also as a strength and conditioning coach and also as a medical um, practitioner and kind of meld those together into a, a, a platform that could both um, identify risk and, and most importantly, implement an evidence-based approach to reduce that risk in, in each individual that, that wants to be active. And I think I was going to ask you what your inspiration for Sparta was, but I think you've, <laughs> you know, you, you, you've uh, taken the words out of my mouth and you've answered it for me. But yeah, um, you know, that's kind of, I think that explains maybe what you, what you set out to do setting up Sparta Science. Um, how has that kind of vision changed over time or how has the company changed with the kind of the evolution of our industry and, and the advancements that we make in performance and sports medicine? Yeah, no, great question. You know, I think it's, uh, I think like a lot of us that, that start out in sport, you, you kind of have blinders on and, and you think what's going on is, is primarily sport related. And I think if there are some silver linings to the current landscape of COVID, it's helped a lot of us that work in sport realize that 
there's a much bigger world out there. Um, and so I think for me personally, one of the ways Sparta's changed is I've, I've become aware of this bigger world out there beyond sports, become aware of, you know, that other people are in pain, you know, soldiers, employees, uh, grandparents, kids, not just people competing on a sports team. And that's really kind of opened my eyes that what I thought was a sport problem is really a human problem. Um, and I, th- I think the other piece that's, that's kind of changed uh, since Sparta started is, is obviously this influx of technologies in this digital health and performance and, and, and fitness space, if you will. Um, and both of those have kind of, you know, challenged and also made our, our product and our mission better. And how do you kind of obviously I've asked a few people this I'm always curious as to like people's thought processes um products are always changing and advancing and it's quite easy to um kind of get sucked into the marketing sometimes when in terms Mm -hmm. of like how you collect data and the tools that you use to collect it how do you guys um you know screen the technology and evaluate whether you should even trial it let alone implement it you know that that is the number one question that is missing from the industry right now is we just don't have educated buyers. Um, and it's no one's fault just because this, you know, field of, of technology within health and sports has come on so quickly. It's risen so fast and it's outpaced, you know, our ability to truly grasp uh, how to evaluate it. So I think, you know, the first step that's got to be used, the first question is, is the information reliable? And reliable meaning, right, is the data or the variables that you intend to use, is it consistent? Because one of the challenges is, is for all of us, no matter where you're at in, in helping people, is that you have to get engagement. You have to build trust. And if that patient, if that athlete sees that the data excuse me, if that data changes, they're going to lose trust in that piece of technology or worse, they're going to lose trust in you as a practitioner. And so it's, it's first evaluating, okay, is this data set is, are these variables consistently day to day? Can I rely that they're going to be consistent? And I think we've seen a lot of wearables. That's their largest challenge. Um, and athletes in particular are going to push that to the limit because they're always trying to game the system, right? They're always trying to find a way to <clears throat> see if they can, can beat the collection process in some way, uh, which is great. It's an excellent battleground for validating technology um, in addition to obviously peer-reviewed publications. Um, but I think that's the first key question is, is the data reliable on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis? And do you kind of, obviously you collect a large pool of data. Do you have kind of, you know, pilots that you run when you're trying to see if a new product can uh, kind of complement what you already do? I think we are always looking into the research and the peer-reviewed research to see you know, have certain technologies actually published their reliability findings on on variables. 
unfortunately, that that step right there, that objective step, you know, rules out a lot of uh, technologies that are out there. Um, I think n- not to say that if it if it's not published, it's it's not useful. I mean, obviously, you know, it takes time to publish papers, and um, but I think that's the first step we look for is um, is it you know reviewed by a third party in some way academically with some reliability metrics. Um, that's kind of the easiest first step. I think the other piece is, um, you know, talking with colleagues in the field in their experiences on a day-to-day basis, have they seen um, at least consistency between um, the metrics or the variables they're looking at? Yeah. I guess it's hard, isn't it? Cause you, there's a, you want to be innovative and you want to, mm. uh, I guess, be an early adopter, but you also don't want to be using, like you said, kind of inconsistent or, or stuff that hasn't been trialed, peer reviewed and um, from like a third party assessed as to whether it, it does um, do what it claims it does. So I think we're always under that kind of hard, uh, yes. that, that pressure of trying to trying to be first and trying to be early, but also um, doing credible methods that, that are reliable. So I think it's right. a tough balance to strike. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's the the biggest challenge kind of where we sit today is um, particularly with social media and other things where athletes and colleagues, um, bosses or, or, or people reporting to you, they're being bombarded with all these new technologies and information and you do want to be on the cutting edge. But at the same time, you, you risk losing it all, you know, in it, you know, from, basically a trust standpoint if you implement technologies that are grossly inconsistent mm. i think you you know i'm from hearing your story i'm aware of um you know what sparked your interest in injuries and, and the performance world and an understanding how those injuries happen but i guess also you're motivated to prevent injuries or get as close mm. to as we can um, and this is a topic that receives a lot of attention and, and a lot of debate all the time in research and, and just conversationally between practitioners. But what I wanted to know with you being at the kind of cutting edge is what does our ability look like currently to, um, you know, to try and predict injuries or how close can we get to this, do you think? Yeah, I mean, we're already there uh, scientifically. Uh, we're just not there emotionally, uh, at least in sports. Um, I think a lot of the debate occurs generally from a misunderstanding of what prediction is. Um, You know, injury prediction really is identifying the probability of a certain outcome. And we're there right now. Medicine's there, sports medicine's there, performance is there. Um, The challenge becomes is if you think prediction can be defined as a guarantee uh, for an outcome, then you're right. There's no guarantees. You know, you can never guarantee that an injury will or will not happen. Um, there's just too many factors. Um, but very much like blackjack, there will be different odds based on the hand that you're dealt. Um, and the, you know, that's constantly changing based on inputs, just like new hands being dealt in the game of blackjack. It sounds um, like people. Um, it sounds like people um, mistake kind of risk identity identification for fortune telling a little bit. Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> in, in yeah. terms of the semantics. Yeah, and and so sci- scientists 
true scientists never say you can't predict anything because they're more familiar with what the term prediction means, um, being a probability. I think in sports, it tends to be a hot topic because there's a low uh, job security that exists. And so um, rightfully so makes everybody a little bit more on edge um, when we use terms like that. But I think once we understand that it's an odds game, um, people, people get more comfortable with it. I think the other key piece when it comes to entry prediction is understanding that no one organization can do it on their own. And so that's where the misunderstanding comes to. If we use an example, like, you know, you, you generally need about a hundred samples of something generically to be predictive. So if an NFL team averages, you know, two, let's say two ACLs a year, that means they'll be able to predict ACLs in 50 years, right? Which, you know, what, what needs to happen is what medicine does. No one hospital has enough diabetes to be predictive. So they have to pool from other hospitals and other health systems to create predictive models. And that's really what sports has to do. Um, and we believe Sparta is doing that. But one of the challenges with sports is, you know, there's a paranoia of sharing information. Even if it's de-identified anonymous injury data, and so without pooling that kind of information, you're never going to get to the necessary numbers for prediction. Mm. Can you kind of walk us through the um, the Sparta model and all the kind of how you in, how you interact and how you assist technologically or as a relationship, how you assist different teams or or kind of um, performance organizations? Yeah, yeah, and I think what what we try to do at Sparta is we try to to help teams build out their own injury predictive models using the using the de-identified data that we have um, around force profiles associated with injury information. And so from that, we're able to provide risk assessments, predictions for each individual, not only based on their position, but also based on where that injury is less or more likely to occur. You know, I think the other key piece is assessments have to be done or screens have to be done relatively near to the actual incident. That's the other challenge is a lot of assessments occur once, twice a year. And so if you do an assessment in August and then you hurt your hamstring in January, you know, of course, prediction value is going to be pretty poor because there's a lot that goes on, you know, within those five months. And so one of the things that, you know, we've hope, hopefully we've done is create an easy enough assessment. It takes about a minute. So you can do it more often. So that way, if the injury unfortunately might occur, it is within a 30 day window of when the last assessment was done. And so that way you can pair up, you know, that assessment with the injury. And that's what creates a more accurate model around prediction. Hmm. And I, I don't know if I'm at all qualified to ask you this question, um, and I'm, it's definitely above my pay grade. But can you, um, you know, you've obviously got an enormous data set because the the amount of data that any of these pieces of technology can collect per second is enormous. Or in, in the first place, let alone when you've collected it on the sample size that you guys have. But 
can you kind of help help explain or uh, explain to me at least um, how do you kind of use AI and machine learning to to take that data and then try and understand the injury risk? Yeah, so one of the important things is um, to have a large enough platform, as you mentioned, to capture and store a lot of that data. Um, you know, our, our platform's built on a, a system called Elixir, which is the same platform that uh, WhatsApp uses, for example. Um, so it's able to store a lot of information and, and move very quickly. Um, the process that we use in, in machine learning to use like, I guess the, the easiest example is if we use a technique and supervised what's called supervised machine learning where, where, you know, the inputs are labeled, what ends up happening is let's say you have force data and you have injury data. So the injury data is labeled like, you know, ACL and force data, you know, would be labeled, let's say eccentric rate of force. And you've got, let's say a thousand rows of that data, what ends up happening is you create training sets, subsets. So let's say we create 500 of those out of the a thousand, we create a subset, a training set, and we build that model out of half that 500. So we built this predictive model with only half of the data. And then we can use that model against the half that wasn't used, the other 500 as a way to validate it. And that is called a, a, a leave one out cross validation process. So that analysis of building it with half, applying it to the half that wasn't used, that's a way to actually, you know, run almost a controlled trial, which you're unable to do uh, with athletes a lot of times. So it's kind of like testing its own validity against itself. That's yeah. right. Yeah. It's a common statistical use uh, particularly in, in machine learning and one that, you know, actually outweighs even the gold standard of randomized controlled trials because it eliminates the bias of who you're selecting as subjects, how much data you're able to input, and a lot of kind of shortcomings that the, you know, RCTs have. And, you know, what are the kind of typical, is there typical blind spots that you're really not able to mm include into that data set for it to kind of um, account for? Yeah, I think a lot of times the mis the misnomer is that, you know, when you're building these types of models, the data you receive is, you know, really clear and clean, um, where, you know, most data is just really messy. Um, and so a lot of time and the hurdles are spent classifying it in the right way in terms of, okay, is that really an ankle? Do we want to differentiate it from an ankle sprain? Um, did they really miss three weeks or did they only miss two weeks? And then they played a shit team on the third week. So he just rested an extra week, you know? So like there's, there's different variables that um, have to be kind of defined within the data sets. And that's the biggest challenge, you know, for any technology is, is making sure that the, the integrity of the information is 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 high. Um, the blind spots, you know, are really the tougher ones are oftentimes the ones that don't happen very often. Um, you know, things like, for example, one of the reasons we just published a paper in 
the American Journal of Sports Medicine that, um, you know, the elbow injury is able to be predicted from a vertical jump, which is a favorite example of mine on machine learning because we didn't go in there looking for that, but the patterns were able to match those up. Um, and so as a result, you know, that that computer-assisted learning was able to find things that we would have never been looking for. Hmm. And excuse my ignorance, but, you know, when you say when a, when your signatures and your systems flag up that somebody might be at risk of, say, an elbow injury and it's, it's come from, say, a jump test, hmm. how much can yeah. the how much can the system or the information set, how much can it kind of detail how or why? Obviously it can say, you know, there's a trend here or there's a relationship based on these factors, but how much can you kind of uh, inversely uh, break down that information? Yeah. You know, that, that is really, you know, that's, you know, what you're alluding to is, is basically the discussion part of the paper. Right. And that's, that's the human uh, necessity of this whole piece. You know, um, you know, a good example, if we do talk about this elbow paper, we would have never looked for that, at least not at first. And but once we're the the system is able to identify it, then we think as practitioners and as coaches, OK, does that make sense? And then we're able to say, well, yeah, it does, because if your eccentric rate of force on a jump is low. Then you're predicted to have an elbow risk if you're a pitcher. Why does that make sense? Well, you don't load your legs. So if you don't load your legs, then you've got to generate that force through your trunk and your upper body, which would make sense that that's an elbow risk. Now, that's the part the computer, the software can't tell us, right? That's where it requires a practitioner, a coach to have some knowledge on biomechanics and the sport itself to be able to, I think, explain it in a way that makes sense. Yeah, and I guess it gives you the warning light to then pull the athlete into the clinic or whatever the environment is, the training room, and and then start your uh, your more clinical face to face evaluation. It gives you that yeah. kind of, you know, that the alert system that you need. That's right, and 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 to your point, a lot of times the value of some of these flags and data is that it allows a conversation to be initiated. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And how much do you kind of how much have you been able to correlate um, or see that? you know, trends between people that have, say, been flagged up as having risk of injury and then maybe the injuries occurring. And I know it's a bit of a flawed question because in theory, if someone flags up as being an injury risk, hopefully they've been managed and it hasn't occurred. But do you ever see, it's hard because you you hope it has been managed, but do you ever see a correlation between the people that have been high risk and then the people that actually get the injury or that's been flagged? Yeah, we've received it. We've seen it related to, um, organizations um and you know the culture of organizations in terms of the action and how quickly that action's taken i think you know the other the other key piece is that you know it's not a binary of risk or not right and so at a low risk level um you know or if we take a high risk level it's very easy to see that group go on to be injured and say, for example, we've got certain thresholds where if it lights up as a risk, there's a 95% chance they're going to get injured. At the flip side, if there's a minimal risk, we've also seen that there's a 15% chance that they've been injured. And so 
I think using the analogy of blackjack is a one that most people can relate to because, you know, it's not no odds versus better odds. You know, it's more of a sliding scale. And ultimately, the practitioner, the coaches, and most importantly, the athlete themselves has to look at that risk and make a decision, calculated decision, um, you know, based on those numbers. Because we're all kind of playing this game of odds in life. Yeah. And I think sport sport is, as we all know, a really imperfect world anyway. Athletes yeah. do have to play in pain and athletes, uh, you know, athletes do play with more than a 0% chance of risk. And it's just, right. it's just realistic, especially, you know, later in the season or near critical games, you know, athletes uh, yep. are going to, and they're going to opt for it themselves a lot of the time as well, but they're going to play the games where their risk is higher. And you saw that with Kevin Durant, right? I mean, last year, you know, the, the Warriors took a lot of heat you know, for him returning after the calf injury, which resulted in an Achilles tear, right? But unfortunately, not a lot of people talked about the fact that, you know, it's the athlete's decision, it's the finals, you know, and while everybody knows there's a risk, you know, that's not the only factor at play. And this is a bit of a, I hope it's not too much of a curveball, and I don't. You don't need to answer this uh, specifically to Sparta, but it can be in relation to to all kind of athlete management systems in general. But how how much is COVID going to you know play havoc with the data sets and the, the enormous changes in schedules? It, obviously, it's going to change competition time, and it's going to change the training and loading that athletes go through. But how much will it really affect the numbers and the and the value that those you know, predictive models provide us with. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's tough. It's tough to fully answer, I guess, that on a, on a macro level, because we really don't know when sports can return yet. You know, and I think there's a lot of optimism out there of, of returning soon, but I don't think we really know when that's going to happen. One of the things I think we can you know, foresee is that, you know, baseline testing um, is going to be very critical for individuals because, you know, as they re-enter back into their job uh, of, of being an athlete, you know, half of them have been probably in some regard binging on Netflix or helping their their loved ones. And then some have been upskilling their training even more. And so you've got these two ends of the spectrums that are going to be returning to be part of the same team. And so using, using metrics to measure these measure baselines as all these individuals return, I mean, that is going to be a significant need for organizations. Um, and also, you know, periodically checking on that to make sure that there's a progression positively or negatively, um, as that individual is exposed to, you know, playing the sport again, you know, I think that's going to be the biggest, you know, change that it's placed on the industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like I said, it's going to remain unknown for a while. Um, and as everything always seems to be, it's very context specific. Um, yeah. With, with the, yeah. Uh, the great, it depends. Um, I saw recently that, um, Sparta's receive kind of considerable investment to expand the efforts in, into public health. Um, is this to branch out into new areas or to try and solve problems outside of elite sport? I know you've touched upon um, sort of military stuff earlier in the in the episode, but 
are you kind of changing or expanding how you do things? Yeah. Uh, to answer your question, yeah, it's, it's probably a, a little bit of each of, of bolstering existing uh, offerings and then growing into new areas. I think the one of the largest challenges of technology is certainly software is very profitable once you get going. Um, the challenge, though, is there's a lot of upfront costs you know, of personnel to build out, you know, the right infrastructure and models. Um, and there's a lot of delayed gratification, if you will. Um, and, you know, particularly with the cost of living out where we're based here in San Francisco, you know, um, it's very expensive to grow, scale, um, you know, the, the technology group we have. And, and, you know, particularly when there's you know, some of these giants around us with significant salaries that are being offered for these engineering roles. Um, so a lot of that is to help continue to grow the the data science team and the engineering team we have in place. Um, but then the other side is, yes, growing into to different areas. You know, most of our work is in um, sports and the government, military right now. And so continuing to grow into those areas but one of the areas that unites everybody is health in terms of healthcare, and so also getting more involved with um, you know corporate health and healthcare, um, just because there's there's such a significant amount of injuries that exist there as well. And I want to try and kind of provide, um, and I try to do this every episode, but I want to try and provide listeners with some places where they can turn to to develop and an upskill perhaps relating to topics that we've discussed um, today is, you know, obviously companies like, your, like yours um, create interfaces that try to make such a complex thing as simple as possible. But mm. do you think there's value in, say, the strength coach or the, the PT trying to become more knowledgeable on, say, data training, AI, machine learning? Or do you think people can kind of, to some degree, stay in their lane and let the technology and interfaces be developed for them um, at their convenience? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I think everybody has a, probably a different viewpoint on that. You know, I'm, I'm of the belief that, you know, it's, it's important to know uh, what's on the other side of the wall. You know, if you're a practitioner to have a really strong, you know, you know, cursory understanding of, of some machine learning concepts or some scientific concepts. I think scientists on the flip side, you know, need to understand, you know, some of the physiological or sports specific principles. But for the most part, I think where the industry sometimes gets challenged is people that sit in the middle um, and, you know, are trying to do, you know, large AI data sets on Excel, you know, that's, that's, you know, at that point, that's the time to, to transfer that over to something and someone that's more specialized in that area of machine learning or AI. Uh, on the flip side, you know, where there's scientists that are starting to try to teach athletes how to pitch or things like that, you know, it becomes much more difficult because that's a skill in and of itself as well. Um, so I'm of the belief of, you know, knowing and respecting other domains, but really trying to improve your own craft um, specifically. 
so maybe a little bit of education and it just allows people to to maybe ask better questions or have better conversations with say, yourself or or Sparta. and, and yeah. i guess it goes way as well scientists um need to upskill in the the sporting disciplines or arenas themselves that's um, right in the middle yeah. ground is with that in mind is there any i guess any books or is, is there any courses or anything that springs to mind or places that where say the clinical end of things or the the coaching side of things where those people can um, get a bit of an introduction that you think would be effective to have a better conversation yeah i think you know, I, I've I guess after so much school, I'm 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 not much of a book reader anymore. Um, you know, I think most of my information that I've been able to, you know, pick up on and learn has really been conversations uh, with um, existing people, but also new new relationships. Um, always seeking to learn out um, new new things and and areas maybe that certain people have expertise around. Um, just, I think sometimes we, we get too much in this Google, just Google it area. Um, and there's so much depth to a lot of these topics that can be effective to, um, learn from, from the mistakes others have made in different fields, because that's as much, if not more of a lesson than, you know, the conclusions themselves. And, We'll um we'll link Sparta in the in the show notes, of course. But is there a good place for people to follow you online? On, are you active on social media personally? Yeah, so I'm on uh, I'm on Twitter, um, Dr. Phil Wagner on Twitter, and then um, you know we we put out a blog every week, which isn't necessarily Sparta oriented at all. It's really kind of trying to take certain concepts and definitions and explain how they might relate to. Um, existing situations and, and principles, you know, prediction being one of them as an example. Um, and so I think those are two great areas for, for more, more information. Cool. Well, I think we're on the clock, but thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I've, I've learned a lot talking to you and I've really enjoyed the, the insight you've given us. Well, yeah. Thank you, Andrew. I'd like to thank Dr. Phil Wagner from Sparta Science for coming on today's show and having such an interesting conversation. Really enjoyed getting some insight into one of the systems that power our performance and injury insights, especially around machine learning. But I'm also grateful that Phil made this topic uh, digestible and easy to understand. Coming up over the next few weeks, we've got episodes with Matt Taberner, Andy Barr, Mita Singh, and a unique Achilles tendinopathy panel featuring Karen Silbernackle, Mark Young, and good friend of the podcast, Matt Tuttle. So definitely a few episodes that you don't want to miss. To ensure that you catch them, hit subscribe and follow us on our Instagram and Twitter handles. Our Instagram handle is informperformance and our Twitter handle is informpod. Thanks for listening to the Inform Performance podcast.